always so honored and happy to be here. This is like, it feels like a reunion, a family reunion every time I want to see. Um, and I'm just so honored to, uh, to follow some of the other amazing teachings and encouragements that you guys have gotten as a church. Um, yeah, after five years of ministry at Berkeley, and uh, then I married someone from Stanford, sorry. So, uh, <laughs> so currently, currently I'm uh, doing, I'm a ministry fellow at Stanford uh, with Christian Union and the Veritas Forum still, and uh, so doing a bit of evangelistic work and interfaith forums and big gritty questions of life and death and uh, from different angles, as well as just straight up discipleship. Um, one thing that's been really on my heart um, has been Jesus commanded us to go and what? Make disciples. And a lot of times we think about conversions and we think about, okay, we want someone to become a believer in Jesus. But if you just say, I vaguely believe in Jesus and just live your life as that, like what is, what is making converts? Jesus didn't command making converts. He said make disciples, people who will become rooted in Jesus and actually then make more disciples. And you know who makes disciples? Disciples. <laughs> you, know who, you know who doesn't make disciples? People are like, meh, I don't know. Um, so let's be a people that are not like, meh, I don't know, you know? Um, so the reason this is really important walking in uh, to, to today is that we're in a culture where almost the best and most virtuous thing you can do is be a tolerant person. To be a tolerant person, to be someone who just, you know, I feel like whoever comes and talks to me, they can be truly themselves. What they believe is what they believe. What I believe is what I believe. And like, we're all so cool. And that makes me sophisticated and mature and not bigoted, which is the most important thing, and not making any exclusive truth claims that upset anybody, and that means I'm the most moral, upright, good person in the world. This is kind of, raise your hand if you think this sort of sounds familiar, of like, are you the most tolerant? Are you the most nice? Um, and I think when we're thinking about Jesus in a post-truth world, I just there are several things that don't quite fit the picture of Jesus being a nice, tolerant guy. Um, which is interesting. <laughs> so as we dig into this, I want you to think about what are the pictures of Jesus you have in your mind and how does he, how would he relate to people that you're having conver uh, conversations with? Or even if the person that you're having conversations with is yourself at two in the morning when you can't get to sleep and you're struggling with doubt. Um, what would Jesus actually say in that space versus like what people say he would say? Um, so the, I'm just going to dive in because we have a lot to cover. Um, and then we'll have a time of questions and prayer and things at the end. But um, let's just dive in. And um, first of all, when you say post-truth world, what is, what is the world that we're in? Um, so basically, somewhere in the 19th century, into the late 19th century, early 20th century, people just sort of lost faith in institutions, lost faith in sort of um, ways that the world is designed and what, or how it seemed to be, and relationships were broken. And people started to become very skeptical of organized religion, of uh, traditional family values, all these different things. And one of the reasons that we're seeing this a lot here in Berkeley is because we are a, a, a hub of, of the world, like in the Bay Area, that is incredibly uh, enriched by diversity. And yet in the midst of that, we sort of see de deconstructionism, which is the idea of like going through different ideas and beliefs and traditions and things that you want to hold on to or maybe throw out. And you look at it and you're like, you know what? Here is religious pluralism. There are multiple paths to God. All religions are equally valid. There is no one true religion. So the most common objection to Christianity is that it, it's exclusive, this exclusivity of 
how can Jesus be the only way to God? This, this main objection comes because we're saying Jesus is the only way to know the Father. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have life. Like, that's, okay, clearly all these people have life. They don't know Jesus, so what? Um, this is sort of the, <laughs> the kind of quandary we're running into. And so we would like to, as Christians, think about what are the ways we can respond to this. Three possible responses in, our, in the engaging the trends of our culture, not knowing what's really true, not knowing who to trust, not knowing what things to hold on to or things to throw out the window. We could do the first thing of act like nothing is wrong or stay oblivious and uninformed. Many people tend to think this is a very good option. <laughs> but you, you, my friends, are not these people. <laughs> Second, people can get super excited. They, let's say you come to know Jesus, you get all excited about apologetics, which is Greek for giving a defense. We all give a defense for different things we believe. And epistemology is the idea of how do we know what we know. So I always joke that with epistemology and apologetics, it's when you piss someone off and then apologize for it. Um, so, but overall, that's the, one of the possible things that you can do when you're interacting with people who you know don't follow Jesus and maybe think you're a little bizarre for doing so. You can speak the truth, but it doesn't actually help the cause of Christ. It doesn't make them consider the hope in Christ. Um, so this is actually one of the things that we talk about a lot with uh, my work with Ravi Zacharias, International Ministries, and the Veritas Forum, is, um, is, is the fact that a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and their contentions are like the bars of a castle. And this is the issue with the second possibility, that many of us aren't super thoughtful about our faith, not just doing a homework of why we believe what we believe, but understanding why do they believe what they believe? What are the stories in their life, and how can I actually respond to rather than react to whatever they're saying that I believe is a lie uh, or misleading? So, so when we're considering this first, um, and we think about, am I winning an argument, or am I trying to win over the whole person? The whole person. We're not just uh, people who are like, you know, as much as people would like to say, uh, my husband's a neuroscientist and psychiatrist sitting right here, and he can tell you that we're not computers. We're not programmed in this way. <laughs> Things are more complicated than that. There are emotions and volition. And so we need to do the response of speaking the truth and make a good case for Christianity. You can do both. If not, why would Jesus command it as if it were possible? He said, be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Speak the truth and also be gracious. Be grace and full of grace and truth. It's like, these are, seem like, you know, how can this be compatible? But since we see that Jesus would never command us to do something that he himself didn't walk out, and then that he himself wouldn't fill us to do it, um, we can be assured that we can, in fact, do all of these accomplishments and avoid this. And in the cases where maybe you're walking in here today and you're like, my God, all my, my relationships are broken. I don't actually know anymore. Like, all these people are so offended, and I myself am offended. Maybe I'm going to walk away from Christianity, too, for a whole bunch of reasons. Well, let's dive in that together. And it, it says it's harder to be one, if you look at it, not impossible to be one. <laughs> I was also going to say that in one of the worship songs, it said, it's so much peace, I can hardly think. But you can still think. <laughs> think you can. And God is gracious with that. And in a, in a world where that makes you think that there is no, like, actual truth to discover, but just to determine it based on your social things and your relationships and what works culturally and politically, Jesus is radically scandalous with saying, truth is discoverable, and here's what I mean. So let's say that you're a little scared by this, and you're like, well, what could be affected if I, as a Christian, embrace religious pluralism, this idea that not just empirical pluralism, of, yeah, we all come from different races and backgrounds and, and uh, to have different perspectives that we have to keep accountable and that reality is somewhere in the midst of that. But religious pluralism is like all the ways. 
reach to God. Well, if you want to embrace a pluralist view, I, I don't want to say you can't be a Christian, but you must remo remove every foundation of Christian belief. So, so, so yeah. <laughs> That's sort of like my piano teacher when I wouldn't practice, and she's like, I'm not going to guilt trip you, but, and then she'd like proceed to guilt trip me. <laughs> um, the issue is that postmodernism, this whole deconstruction world, they actually can't construct anything. We can't just reconstruct something that's true. So let's together pick apart the reasons why postmoderns in this post-true culture, they have some points. They have some points that you not only need to understand, but you need to be able to like sit in for a minute with your own faith and then respond and commend Christianity and be commended in your heart and reinforce your own faith. Because postmoderns and pluralism deny the following pivotal doctrines of Christianity. And other than that, we have everything in common. Uh, sins atonement, biblical reliability and exclusive truth claims, objective truth and morality, the incarnation, the resurrection, the triune God, and what happens when we die. Other than that, we can all get along pretty fine without like agreeing, right? So as we can see, it's, it's, it's really hard. So this is why scripture says, um, a, and judgment is turned away backward and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth falls, and he that departs from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. Isaiah 59, 14 and 15. When we think about um, the world, we all want to say, we want human progress. We want to be good people, good neighbors, good whatever, right? You can have a lot of these common things of, yeah, I want to be a moral, upright person. I want to be a spiritual person. These are things that we have in our culture. But if you throw away all of the objective foundations upon which those definitions are made, what are we going to have when it comes to the court of law? We're actually seeing a lot of injustices increasingly happen because who do you blame if you don't think that there's personal agency? Who do, you, who do you call out for wrong if there's no actual agreed, not just agreed upon, but discovered wrong? Um, so we need to think about the implications and just ask pivotal questions to make people think. Psalm 11.30 says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? You don't have a leg to stand on if you don't know how to define truth, if you don't know how to define morality, if you don't know how to define justice. Because, you know, C.S. Lewis says, when we call a line crooked, the assumption is that we've seen a straight line. And if the world has convinced you that there's never been a straight line, how can you possibly know what's crooked or how to make it right? And this is why we know that there is a spiritual blindness on our, in our civilization. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I don't know about you, but that is a great promise and power of what God says is actually going on versus what we think is going on. You may think it's about relationships or politics, but it's deeper. It's about human condition and what God has already revealed to us. Okay, so now that I've painted that little nice picture for you, I do not want us to despair but instead to discover and to have hope and then share that with others. So let's dive into the three steps in addressing these issues. Uh, the first thing you need to do is actually understand the pluralist view. I know I was joking about other people saying, oh, nothing's really wrong, but oftentimes we don't actually listen to people. We just wait for our turn to talk <laughs> or add a comment or add a clarification or tear down one of their little ideas. And people can tell when you're treating them like a project People can tell when you're not actually listening to their story and their objections. So one of the first things that we can do is to be not rushed in our relationships with people 
And to understand that um, we're trying to find our way, human beings are trying to find their way in the world, and they're overwhelmed with as much stimuli as you or I. Um, in fact, the whole entire world, aside from one trifling exception, is made of others. And have you given them uh, the weight that comes with that? Um, we also need to respond to their objections, actually respond, not react, and then, and then at the end, there's a lot of conversations that could maybe happen with you and some non-Christian friends before you get to the point where you can actually commend Christianity. So let's dive into understanding their view. Um, so the popular view is this idea that there are multiple paths to God. Um, and, you know, as we see, like, with, with uh, charting territories and maybe it's unknown territory to people, uh, there's this idea that, you know, there's a reality that's discovered and everyone can kind of maybe make parts of the map more detailed or experience things or have uh, experiences in, but if they, but in, in the real world, you don't just say, I've never been there, therefore it doesn't exist. Like, <laughs> you know, um, but in the world, we see that uh, people say, well, it's like climbing up a mountain. So the next picture, I think it's of mountain. Yeah, so let's, let's say there's a beautiful peak that you want to get to the top of. And there's all these various paths and trails to get to the top. So this illustration of like pluralism in our culture, in the post-truth world, is saying everyone has their own unique journey. We're all trying to find our way of human condition and, and relationship with God. All paths are true and equally valid. And so once you get to the peak, then you will have a relationship with God. And so maybe one side is like the Hindus have their experience and they get to the top and they find out the meaning of life. Some people are Buddhists, they get to the top and they find out the meaning of life. You know, whatever. So here's the illustration is that basically we're all in different paths. That's why they look and sound different. That's all. It's just, you know, on its surface, it seems very different, the different world religions. But on its core, they actually believe the same thing. We need to be a good person. We can have relationship with the divine in some way. Um, but I want to immediately say that there's a big critique for the mountain path. Number one, this is the most important thing, analogies are not arguments. Analogies are not arguments. Unless it's a premise, warrant, premise, warrant, conclusion, or a series of those syllogisms, it's not an actual argument. If someone says, I'm not a Christian because blah, 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 and they tell some sad sob story about some jerk they knew who was a Christian, and that's why they can't be a Christian. Man, that's a sad sob story. We should really, like, dig into that. Like, what, what does that mean? But really, in the end, I could probably prove to them, well, if the human condition of the person who was a jerk in the name of Jesus did something jerk-like, and the gospel is that all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and only Jesus is not a jerk, and Jesus is only perfect, and really all Christians should know that about themselves, and you proving to me that Christians suck is not really a, that doesn't really tear apart the goodness of Christ. <laughs> it just points out the fact that he said his followers are going to screw up and they need him. So, um, but what's interesting is that because it's a powerful emotion that's hooked to the story, or the powerful emotion hooked to an analogy that feels, just look at that picture, just... Isn't that just like mature, <laughs> you know, to think about your faith this way? But the reality is this. It so we, we see that it acknowledges the diversity and the sincerity that people have, right? That people are very sincere. But have you heard of the thought of you can be sincere but sincerely wrong? It completely takes away that. So we, we are all about, in this culture, lived experiences. And it takes that into play. And I want you to really understand the lived experience of others, not so you can prove them wrong, but so you can say, what is their heart really longing for, and how can Jesus meet that need better than any of this mumbo-jumbo, frankly. Okay, so because it, takes, it fails to take seriously a few things. 
it, takes, it doesn't take seriously the exclusive claims of key religious figures. For example, Muhammad and Jesus, I have a, I have a feeling that they would rather think rather you think that their views were wrong and not follow them or live by them than to try to fit into this pluralist view. Because when someone says all religions are making the same claims, they obviously are showing their ignorance of world religions and traditions. Maybe they're showing their, their prowess and, and a vague occult world where spirituality is seen as beautiful, but past any of that, what are the actual doctrines going with the reality and the interpretation of reality? We can't start to get around that. Um, so Muhammad and Jesus, as we can see here, like would just truly, you know, these things are not the same. They are not the same. One of them married a six-year-old girl. One of them did not. One of them claimed to die on a cross and resurrect from the dead. One of them did not. One claimed that he was a special prophet who has special privileges and insight that you could never have. One of them said, I give a gift freely so all might live. I was looking at Stephanie and Ben as they were handing the communion out. And every sentence, no matter what person walked down, they said, here's the body of Christ broken for you. Here's the blood of Christ shed for you. That's a completely different message than you're going to need to go grab that rifle and kill that infidel. You're going to need to pay to get this information and to get more information as we go, like Scientologists or some other beliefs. To say that all of those are not real is, you know, as thinking people, we have to say, I want to respect people who believe different things enough to actually get right what they say they believe rather than say we automatically agree because we're nice to each other. Um, so ultimately, there are glaring contradictions between religions, and we should be mature enough to recognize those and give enough respect to those who choose to believe the different things to allow them to live that way. But then to also say, let's not have a double standard. I will also be bold in saying what I believe and what I will live out and why. And if someone presses you on it, ask some questions that just truly show, the holes will start to show themselves. We're only like, I don't know how long into this, but you're probably like, oh, I guess so. Like, um, okay, so another illustration I really like to use when talking about pluralism is the idea of, um, my family's been on my mind a lot, so I'm gonna use this illustration of asking all of you um, to explain my mom. So here's a picture, just so you can know, of my dad and my mom and me. Um, unfortunately, my dad passed away just over a year ago, and uh, but anyway, my mom is still, still trucking along. Anyway, if I were to ask you, without showing this picture, to describe my mother to me, you've never met her. Uh, you might say different explanations. Some of you would look at me and assess, oh, she's 5'10", blondish brown. I bet your mom is tall. Your mom's tall, right? She has, like, long hair. Like, no. Clearly not. She is 5'3", with brown, dark, curly hair which is opposite of what I look like, basically. Yet, the reality is that I came out of this woman, and I've known her my whole life. And yet, if you have a fervent reason or series of things that you're adjudicating what my relationship with is my, with my mother, would it be wrong if I were to, in the end, point it out? Ah, here's a picture, and like, you were wrong. It's not like you would all be offended. How dare you? Like, but I know your mom. It's like, do you? <laughs> you wouldn't, you wouldn't be. But what's interesting is when we have questions about our faith or who our Heavenly Father is, who is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who is, or any other person in history, maybe you're very curious about other religious figures, about the Buddha or uh, Siddhartha, you know, all these various things. Well, then you need to actually ask someone who says, I know this person, and here's what they're like. 
Here's what they look like, how they act, how they sound, what they do. And in a world where lived experience is so important, I want you to walk away with the fact that you are not trying to get someone to believe a concept, but someone that you're connected to in relationship. And you have the right in that relationship to say, no, 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 you got him wrong. I know because, like, I know him. Um, and if you've lost that, I just want to ask us today, I'm not going to give you a reason of, I'm not going to tell you why I've lost it, because I'm not you, but what is it that maybe has lost, has made you lose your confidence in saying, you know, this doesn't sound right how they're making Jesus sound, or how they're making other Christians sound, or how they're making whatever sound. But think about what can you do to get to know Jesus more, and then to be bold about what he can do in a post-truth world. So moving on, let's say we're going to be more sophisticated in that, that mountain thing. Um, uh, there once, once upon a time, I'll tell you the story, the parable. Jesus liked those, so I'm going to be like him. Hold on. Um, once upon a time, there were several blind men, and they stumbled upon this, like, big thing. And they all are blind, so it's like kind of the blind leading the blind. And one guy is like, ah, you know, it's a rope. I can feel it. Here's the grooves. Here's how long it is. Like, da-da-da, it's a rope. And like, okay, what are we going to do with this rope? And then the other guy's like, no, it's a, this is a straight-up wall. And he's, like, hitting it. He's like, this is a wall. <laughs> like, what is, what is going on? Like, and another person says, no, it's a, it's a tree trunk. It's actually quite large. And he's wrapping his arms around it. They're all describing it to each other. And then uh, from further away, this king says, oh, these poor blind fools. Of course, this is an elephant. And they're all touching different parts of the elephant. If they were like me with my vantage point, they would be able to see that they're all touching part of the same thing. Now, this is an illustration, it's called the, it's called the blind men analogy. And this is used for pluralism and in a post-truth world. The idea is that like all these ideas or truths or religious views are like these blind men. And we're just, you know, from our region of the world, from our religious or sacred text, we think that we're explaining things in our, as reality. And we are, in a way, but it's a very small, the guy with the trunk, yeah, the, like that was like him hugging the leg of the elephant. The guy with the wall, like he was pressing against the side of the elephant, you know. This other person with the, like a holding a snake, it's the tail, or, you know. Obviously, it's like kind of a, oh, interesting, and look at the king who's so, um, again, mature and sophisticated and smart and cultured because look at what they can see. Who finds this analogy intimidating at face value? Right now, just like raise your hands. If you've, if you've heard this before, you haven't, but you're like, I know where you're going with this and this is scary. Okay. Um, so there are three things that we can critique about this pretty off the cuff. Um, it begs the question. The question under consideration is whether or not different religions are experiencing and describing the same God in a limited sense. In the same way of like, if everyone climbs the same mountain, they get to the top, who and what is at the mountain and what you do when you get there? Why aren't we discussing that in the illustration? <laughs> like that seems to be a big thing. What are you going there for? Who are you meeting with there? And here, the question of, of consideration of like, is it the same God that's part of it? Um, and then the analogy begs the question by starting with the assumption that the blind men are, in fact, doing this very thing. Um, so it's actually quite uh, biased towards an able-bodied perspective. Um, I don't know if you've ever met blind people, but they're quite good at what they do in the sense that every, even a blind man could feel around, oh, you know what, I think it's connected to this. And like, you know, they would eventually be like, it's an elephant. I'm blind, but I could tell you that. Where, why is there arrogance rather than humility and understanding of other people's lived experience to say, you know what, 
The truth can be discovered even if you have limitations, like blindness or uh, regional perspective or ethnocentrism or <laughs> all these things. Um, so a blind man would not stop his search for truth until he had investigated the entire object. So it's radically skeptical to the regard of religious knowledge, the idea that we can discover anything at all. And it's a self-accepting fallacy that, oh, these poor schmucks believe all this trash, but me, I'm not blind. Why are you not blind? How did that happen? And who died and made you king? Like, I don't know. So these are some things we need to understand that though analogies resonate, they are not real. Though they are, <laughs> and most people speak in analogies because they haven't done their research. That's a fun fact. Okay, step, step two. What do we mean when we say understanding the objections to Christianity? Well, let's look at the, f I wanna look at five biggest ones, five biggest objections to Christianity, and then together we can kind of respond and look at some of the fallacies in the objection, the thing that speaks to us, and then speak to the truth of the matter. So objection one, religious beliefs are culturally relative, therefore your belief that Jesus is the only way is false. Religious beliefs are culturally relative. Well, first and foremost, I want us to know that the reason it's appealing is because postmodernism and pluralism answers and objections are a way for people to live in harmony with others in religious diverse cultures. It's a convenient way to appear spiritual without, I know this is gonna make people mad, without being committal. <laughs> Who wants to just be uncommittal, but like honored and revered for living for something bigger than themselves? And somehow our culture is wanting to do both. But what we see throughout history is unless you give your all, you can't, you can't follow really, but it's a convenient way to try. And it's a way to answer the problem of the multitudes of committed followers of other religions who are excluded from salvation, biblically speaking. Um, but this objection particularly commits two fallacies. I don't know if you've ever heard of the genetic fallacy. Um, it has nothing to do with genetics, thank God. Um, but it is invalidating a belief by criticizing the way a person came to hold it. So, for example, if someone says, you're only a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home. Well, a lot of people who became Christians were raised in non-Christian homes. That's an easy response. Or, what are you? Oh, I'm a secular humanist. And what are your parents? A biology professor and an anthropology professor. <gasps> Interesting. So just pointing out to people that it may be the case that socially I have been impacted. It may be the case that different explanations have been emphasized to me because of my location or what I am studying or who I'm around, but none of us are you know, set aside and excluded from that reality, that there's a play going on, a dynamic going on between us and our surroundings. So when we're looking at this objection, um, we need to, um, yeah, we need to understand that the genetic, that, that just because someone believes something that we don't believe and we don't like the way they came to believe it, it could in fact still be true. Um, even something like if we heard a sound and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that was a plane flying overhead. Let's say we all run outside and look and the plane was overhead, but like my reason for believing it was kind of stupid. It was like, uh, you know, this might be the case, but it is in fact the case. So even if someone becomes a Christian for stupid reasons or for really good thoughtful reasons, that does not actually address any of the actual true or falsities about the Christian beliefs them themselves. Um, the next thing is self-refuting. Again, the pluralist's own beliefs are the product of his social environment. So just remember that. Just because 
Just because someone has an objection doesn't mean that, they, that you can't have an objection back. Um, the next objection is that there can't possibly be only one way. This implies that narrow claims of any sort cannot be true. But by definition, all truth claims are narrow. It's a very narrow truth claim to be like, my mom's 5'4 and has dark curly hair and not all the things you said. Um, <laughs> but the reason that we're offended with narrow truth claims is if there's more things in life that are determined based on what that truth is or isn't, then you have to, the cost of discipleship, if you will, escalates, right? There's not a lot of wrongs. If I prove you wrong about what my mom looks like, none of you care. But if I'm like, you're wrong about the character of God and what that means for your life, you have that kind of conversation and you're like, you're trying to do like a, a tablecloth move where everyone has like a decorated table and it's like, this will go well for my relationship. <laughs> your God's fake. And then it's like, oh my gosh, like this is a disaster. Um, <laughs> so we have to understand that even though to us, the objections, maybe to us and by us, I mean, if you actually align with Christianity, think that you're a Christian, you believe you're a Christian, have experiences as a Christian, what you think other people are thinking is actually most likely what you as a Christian are thinking and feeling. Even when you're trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes, it's still like a Christian in somebody else's shoes. So the idea of, well, if I experienced that, I would respond to Jesus in this way. And it's like, well, they're not you. So um, I want us to understand that when it's, uh, there can't possibly be own, only one way, all of us kind of believe that there's only one way, our way our way. In the end, we all want it to be our own way. Um, and because of the fact that it's self-refuting and all truths are actually narrow, um, we have to abide by that. Uh, I think of actually uh, some of the people in this room that are probably much, much smarter than me and understand mathematics or, uh, or engineering. And I think about how if I were to take offense that I can't apprehend a certain concept in math or engineering, but I demand that I be given the rights to build everything in our culture, <laughs> or else you are bigoted. <laughs> um, God, that would just like, all of us are going to die somehow, because the roads would be insecure, the bridges would fall apart, the like buildings would collapse, like things would go horribly, because my subjective experience of engineering and math is not the objective reality of math and engineering. And yet what's interesting is when we go to the deep truths of spirituality and religion, we, try, we think that it doesn't matter to say what are subjective reasons why we've rejected this thing. But I want us to understand that when it's, there can't be only one way, sometimes there is only one way. Now, the difference is, can you find out the way or can't you? Um, moving on to the next one. Uh, this is my favorite. Christians are narrow-minded, bigoted, and intolerant. Um, first of all, you cannot judge a system by the abuse of that system. And so as soon as you only point out the wrong things, you can deconstruct something. You can't actually prove to me, okay, for all the ways that Christians have been bad, maybe, in your opinion, what can you say about all the ways that they have been good? Or what we can see, not just in Western civilization, but let's zoom out and look at the world. Because when, when Christianity started in the Middle East, A, not a white man's religion, started in the Middle East, first century Aramaic-speaking Jewish guy, not white. So, for example, to be bigoted or racist or something and have that be connected to the religion shows ignorance about where the religion actually started. And then from there, it actually went much bigger in revivals and great awakenings going to the, to the global south and to the east. When it came to the west, 
um, it became so uh, conflated with politics and ideologies and sort of uh, in-group and out-group stuff that it has turned into a very interesting situation we have here. But the, but the benefit, <laughs> <laughs> which is why we're hearing this objection more and more, but the best thing you can do as a Christian is to point to Christianity outside of the bubble of impact that a person who is the critic is inside of. Did you know that every other religion is limited by geography? Like 99% of Hindus are where? In India. What happens when people become Muslim? Sharia law, Islamic states. Overall, that's usually what happens. What happens when Christians are in leadership? You do end up with a culture that has freedom of religion and many practices going on. In other cultures where it's Buddhism, it's, a, it's very much this, this area is for this religion, this area is for this religion. The one that actually, not by force, not by a coercion, has spread across all those lines. To, and truly what Jesus said of there's no more Greek or Gentile, there's no more uh, slave or bond, uh, and bond and free, none of that. It's truly all Christianity. We can point to Jesus as a response to this, I would, rec I would read uh, from the New Testament, the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9 through 12. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and, t and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Okay. That is the reality of what's going to happen in the end, and that does not sound bigoted to me. That does not sound exclusive in the sense of, you're from here, you can't believe in Jesus and go to heaven. Um, my husband and I are also talking that uh, with this idea of Christians that are narrow-minded, bigoted, and intolerant. Did you know that aside from Christianity uh, and, and Islam and Judaism, basically the three monotheistic religions of the world, everybody believes you go to hell or are annihilated? Let's try that on for size. You're mad at me as a Christian for saying some of you may go to hell, but some of you may go to heaven based on what you do with Jesus. In contrast to everyone here will die without actually having meaning or purpose and will be like obliterated. How is that not offensive? Like in contrast, and if someone's saying, here's the occult beliefs, here are the pagan beliefs, all of, they, all of them believe you go into the underworld, which is a very confusing, increasingly devastating place. If you've ever seen the movie, What, what Dreams May Come, uh, where I think it's like Robin Williams follows his wife who committed suicide down into hell. And basically it's this whole tormenting thing of like, where's God and what's happening in the universe? And even in the afterlife, it's like, we don't know what anything is. Like, that's what other religions truly have to offer. And then Christianity, Jesus says, if you accept my free gift, you will go to heaven. How is, so I just think that that's an interesting, uh, that every other religion, you all go to hell. So that's an interesting thing to talk about that no one wants to. Um, <laughs> and it's also uh, an ad hominem fallacy, if you've ever heard of this. It's uh, an attempt to invalidate a position by attacking the character of those who hold it. But this, even if a fact, just, um, does not prove that Christianity is false. And tolerance, by its very definition in the in the dictionary means to disagree maybe permanently or live differently permanently but with an understanding that you will fight for the right for someone else to believe differently than you or live differently than you when we're looking at our world particularly those who are making sweeping statements about the character of others who believe different things do you see tolerance from those who are demanding tolerance 
I'm not going to answer for you, but just think about it. The people who in your life are saying, I need you as Christians to not be judgmental. Are they being judgmental? And about whom are they being judgmental? And could you perchance have them try on the shoe of hypocrisy that they've forced upon your own feet? Number four, objection four. No one can know the truth, let alone about God or salvation. Well, my first question is, is what you just said the truth? And I know that seems so <laughs> pretty explanatory, but that itself is a truth statement, which means it's self-refuting, which is a favorite thing of pluralism philosophy is self-refuting argumentation, circular arguments. Uh, this is an objective truth claim in itself. It implies that there are no criteria by which we can test truth claims, even the truth claim just made. Um, I don't know if that, is that making sense? Okay. Uh, I'm all excited and I lost my place. So what we can say, in contrast, that Christianity believes that when, and not just Christianity, but philosophy and the law of non-contradictions, that when claims correspond to reality, they are true. So when you're examining worldviews and you're examining, what do I believe and why do I believe it? And how am I going to talk to this other person about this? Ask yourself, can what you believe carry the weight of all the nuances of reality? Does it give, maybe you can't answer all the questions. Uh, scripture talks about giving peace that passes beyond understanding, but it doesn't say peace that contradicts understanding. The Lord can go beyond our reasoning, and the world's wanders are bigger than our understanding, but that doesn't mean they completely contradict. So going into number five, this is the thing that's closest to my heart. Um, it's, is, is what about those who have never heard the name of Jesus? Um, Earlier, we looked at a picture of Unitarian Universalism and the Trinity not. And so if you look at it, it could, can God both be impersonal and personal or all-knowing or finite in some way or made by other gods or made by no one? No, obviously these things are mutually exclusive claims. But even the question of, of God loves all people, but some people go to hell. That seems also like a, that's a contradictory thing. It doesn't, it's a mutually exclusive truth claims, it seems. So the biggest thing I want to talk about with this goes to after <laughs> probably far too long in counseling situations and with my family, dear God, with my family. Um, there are a lot of assumptions about other people's intentions and motivations or what they're doing, why they're doing it, that we try to say to each other. Uh, we guess how other people are thinking and feeling. And usually we're doing that by projecting what we think and feel, even if we're trying not to. This sort of question is the biggest trap because it's emotionally manipulative. Um, if someone were to ask you a yes or no question like, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Yes or no? That doesn't leave room for explanation, insight, rebuttal. It, you can't say yes, because that means you beat her at some point. You can't say no, because that means you're still beating her. You know, <laughs> and if, if they disallow anything else. So sometimes when, when questions are phrased in a way of, what about those who have never heard the name of Jesus? Well, because the question behind this is, I know scripture and you say people go to hell if they don't believe in Jesus. So how do you make Jesus not be a jerk from that? Well, this implies that there are people who never hear the gospel who are lost simply because of history and geography, and that is a major assumption. One of the best things I've done is look at church history across, not just the West, but across. You could see stories of the most 
unlikely conversions, crazy stories of supernatural abilities of God bringing the truth of Jesus Christ to people. And I mean, and if you just want to share stories of people like lived experience stories, I could send you guys a ton of stories to discuss with someone like that would make them say, wow, I truly didn't know that was possible. But we know from scripture, let's look at what scripture says about God. First Timothy 2, 4, God uh, and, and 2 Peter 3, 9 says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth and to come to, and scripture is very clear that it says it comes to a point of repentance. God desires that everyone comes to a point of repentance. Universalists will try to say God wants everyone to get saved, so they will. But what we believe as Christians and what scripture says is that God never will force his hand on your agency when it comes to whether you want to give your life committed fully to him or think about it and step back from that point. And that is a, that is a uh, sacredness that many people don't have their, in their agency so far in this world. Other people, they get smushed, their opinions clobbered down by everybody around them, politically, economically, everything, socially, and God says, I desire you to make your own choice. I desire you to uh, say yes or no to this relationship because you want it. Um, and so that the lack of force there is actually quite um, beautiful in combination with God's revelation. Uh, Romans 1, 19 and 20 and Romans 2, 14 and 15 says that God has revealed himself to all people through creation and conscience. And if a person responds to the light given through general revelation of this world or like the spiritual experiences we might have and asking that God would show himself I have stories. We have, there are stories of truly God making a way for that person to come to special revelation. One story we have is in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius was a Gentile man who was giving alms to the people, doing all sorts of good deeds, was active um, in his community, and had this weird dream where he was like, I need to wake up from the dream. Is like, someone get Peter for me. Like, I have to talk to this Christian. Um, and the specificity that God used to win Cornelius, Peter came and Peter was probably like, why? Cornelius is a great guy. Like, why do I need to go preach to him? Like, maybe God knows something that we don't about each people's hearts and their agency in deciding to get to Christ. And, um, and he met him there. And since we have examples in scripture of God's character, of his desires, of his revelation, and of his testimony of how he's worked with others, we should let that guide us more than a hypothetical with no name or face that someone would use in a question like this. To, uh, and then also Hebrews 11.6, I love this, God rewards those who earnestly seek him. I don't know if you've ever uh, had a situation where you realize you were wrong and going back and changing your mind or something was kind of laden with guilt and shame and, you know, like, I told you so. Um, and God doesn't do that at all. In fact, James chapter 1, he says he, he gives grace and wisdom and a braid of not, and that means he will not rub it in. He will not rub it in, and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Um, and I think that it, we also can know from Romans 1, 21 and 22 that most people still reject God based on general revelation. This is hard. This is the hardest thing. This is when I realized I was very controlling because, like I said earlier when I said, I imagine that a person feeling or thinking this or going through this would do this. Oh, well, surely they'd believe in God if, like, um, X, Y, Z happened. I was talking to one of my atheist friends who said, well, if God did this miracle in front of me, like I chopped my leg off and then it like to prove he exists, he re-put it on, you know, maybe I would believe. And it's like, well, no, because then you would find some reason to make that not the real proof that you needed. You always need some other proof, 
some other proof, some other thing. And I think that uh, we need to understand that God knows human hearts better than we do. God loves people more than we do, if we're going to go based on what general revelation and special revelation says. And so the question then, the remaining question then of, are there people who did not respond to nature and conscience, but would have been saved if only they'd heard the gospel message? So like, that's a, that's a painful question. Um, first of all, it's possible that there are no such person and that we could be completely wrong about intentions and motives, and God knows when people say yes or no. And then I would like to point you to some philosophy. Uh, William Lane Craig um, is an amazing philosopher, and he discusses uh, the middle knowledge view of God. God is so big that this is kind of like the little basis to help us maybe quell our fears about this objection. God knows what every free creature would do in every circumstance, including how they would respond to the gospel. Based on this knowledge, God has providentially ordered the world so that all persons who never hear the gospel would not have believed even if they heard it. And this goes along with what we can see happen when Paul went to the Areopagus at the Areopagus in Mars Hill, and he met with all the people who had tons of, obviously, reverence and fear. And they, had, they even were like, man, to cover all our bases, here's the, tomb to the temple to the unknown god. Like, that'll do a trick, right? <laughs> um, we're, we covered all our bases. We truly are going to worship or submit to whatever's there. And Paul is bold enough to say, in times past, we might have had that cluelessness. Now, now we see that Jesus is God come in flesh. So in a post-truth world, how can we do the last thing? And I know we're running out low on time, so I'm going to try to... Um, Let's see, uh, with commending Christianity, we want to do a few things. We want to encourage someone that we love to begin a truth quest because we have to follow the hurdle, <laughs> cross the hurdle of persuading them that the truth is real and matters and that the truth quest is worthwhile. And then we can help them with a method of recovering their desire for truth and that Jesus meets the deepest desires of our heart. So let's like, okay, now that we've deconstructed all of the objections, we'd like, how do we build something in its stead? How do we make Christianity be appealing and compelling? Um, I, if, if, if you would like a few profound things, I encourage you to watch The Matrix or The Truman Show. Uh, I know it's a more school, but uh, the idea is that you can get to reality and past illusions somehow. You can discover what's real and how you've been fooled and wronged, and you can live for the biggest thing. Um, and we can actually go that same route with committing Christianity. Um, so I love talking about those shows and being like, Jesus is like when Truman finally walks up those steps and against the sky and like pushes the door open and it's just like, what's gonna happen? And the movie ends. It's like, he found Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, the, but basically we can offer different visual frameworks for diversity and their personal truth quest. What we know about analogies are not arguments is important. But knowing that analogies are powerful, we can then use a better analogy. So if someone is in your, in your friend circle, like, I don't like truth and appeal to truth claims. Okay, how about I appeal to a better claim? Not true, but better than yours. Um, so we can go, we can show them the Hampton Court maze example. Um, so there's this place um, that is, that basically is like a very, very massive maze. And uh, it recognizes, using the Hampton Court maze is, is the following. It, you can recognize similarities in religions that run parallel to each other at times and are going the same direction, like some of the pathways in a, in a, in a maze might be running parallel, but they're not the same path. It encourages investigation 
dead ends help to guide you to the right path. They're not a waste. If you get dead ended or lost for a while, you're not lost altogether. Um, there is a design to the maze. Um, there is only one way to the center of the maze in the Hampton Court maze. And so even if, so someone might be lost in the maze for like a bit. Um, let's say in the illustration that God is on the platform because in our view of Christianity, God is relational and like wants you to do well in the maze. It's not like he's sitting on the platform like, good luck. <laughs> he's actually, I'm going to help direct you. So God could be on the path, platform guiding people to the right path, path, people who are otherwise hopelessly lost. That maybe it is that God, through general revelation and special revelation, is guiding us through. We can acknowledge the complexities. We can acknowledge the, the bigness of these walls and the ways that we can't see all the things. But we can know that someone did and someone designed it with our best in mind. And the best being that you get out in time for lunch. <laughs> um, so the criteria for testing truth claims, then, would be it has to match the universe. A religion should harmonize with what we know about God from the nature of the universe, so the existence and beginning of a finite universe, the fine-tuning and order of the universe. What religion speaks to those details? It should speak to miracles. Um, religion's origin should not merely be the result of brilliant, hu brilliant human insight or philosophical wisdom. It should appeal to divine activity. This is why, so what's really important is that we're now past the neo-atheistic age, where now religious pluralism is open to discussions of supernatural phenomena, paranormal activity, weird stuff that like science can't explain, quantum mechanics, blah. Like this is the perfect time to hone in on like, how do you explain in your worldview this or this or this weird thing or this or this or this testimony that speaks to supernatural things? Um, in many religions, did you know that miracles are just an added attraction? The teaching is what's central. In every other religion but Christianity, teaching is more central than miracles. But in Christianity, it's founded upon the miraculous event of the bodily resurrection of Christ after a sinless life. And after being murdered for, like, weird reasons where he, like, claimed he was God and the Jews got upset. It's, like, very bizarre things that actually happened were miraculous and that people need to give an account for. In addition, you could look at the fulfilled Old Testament prophecies over thousands of years. And even if you're not quite sure what made them come to pass, the fact that they did come to pass is something to use to discuss. How do you explain this? Is this a miracle that this prophecy happened? In contrast, like look at these other like prophecies from other religions that didn't come to pass. Um, and then, so supernatural explanations are needed for the origins and success of Christianity and Judaism. Um, but not of Islam or other religions. And we can remember that when we have these conversations. We can also remember that um, uh, the human condition is the deepest part of why we're looking to religion in the first place. Human condition, which religion best explains the following things? Feeling of alienation from God, other people, and themselves. Feeling of deep and abiding shame and guilt. Desire for personal life after death. Desire for meaning and purpose. Desire for a life of beauty and drama. To be a part of something big and important. To be a part of the struggle between good and evil. A desire to live a life of virtue. Identifying our human condition is essential in identifying the solution. Listen very closely to the deepest desires and points about human condition that your friends are making and see how does Jesus speak specifically to this desire in a way that what they're currently believing isn't able to. And lastly, we need to understand that Jesus himself is like a baller, truly, truly the most famous person in all of history. And how is that the case if he was just another revolutionary, just another religious figure, just another dude who was nice or kind or tolerant or whatever? Um, needless to say, he like 
threw over tables in a temple and got crucified. But other than that, it's like completely like everybody else. Um, no, most religions claim Jesus as part of their system, and this is where it works for you. Uh, did you know that Hinduism believes that Jesus was an avatar of Krishna? In, in Islam, Muslims claim that Jesus was a prophet. They even acknowledge that he was born of a virgin. What would it be a born of a virgin for? Like, who does that and why? Like, that miracle was already a problem in Christianity. Islam's taking that point? Like, um, and for Buddhists, Jesus is enlightened. He's somehow enlightened. So every religion looks at Jesus as having something desirable or something good to say. But for Christians, Jesus is all of this and more. Jesus is the God-man who is the only mediator between God and man and the reason that we uh, believe in, in something bigger than ourselves, all these answers. <clears throat> so the, one of the last things I wanted to look at was um, Sean McDowell, who uh, the son of Josh McDowell, who wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which is like an excellent piece of work, um, says, why start with Christianity in a truth quest? Christianity is unique, that's why. It's testable. Evidence can be investigated. There are public claims to be scrutinized. This is in contrast to Buddhists who empty their minds, Mormons who have everything in secret and has a feeling in their chests, and Muslims who say that you can't question what is given by the authoritative prophet. Also, Christianity is free, free. Lastly, you can live like Christianity is true. You can have a coherence internally and externally, logically and volitionally as a, as a, as a Christian. You don't have to go back on what you know God says in the Bible because it contradicts with something in reality. And that is a very specific, um, beautiful thing that Christianity has to offer. I want to read a couple things to encourage us as we're wrapping up, and then we can cover um, things in the... Uh, what time do I end again? Five. Five, okay. Um, so we have uh, this quote by Lucian, who's a historian who in the second century wrote, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day. The distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, and which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they're, they're converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith, with the result that they all despise worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. What's interesting is that the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ will change your life and make you look like that, hopefully the early church. And none of these problems of a post-truth culture are new. Whenever uh, Jesus came, it says in Galatians 4.4 4, that in the fullness of time he came. That was around the time that the Romans' roads were finishing up, so they could go, they could spread the gospel far and wide, which meant that they had to go down paths they didn't know, interacted with people they'd never met, to talk about a person that that person had never heard of. <laughs> they had to deal with uh, mysticism from the East, Hellenistic culture, and uh, the, uh, the view of gods and emperors being one and the same. They had to deal with all sorts uh, of zealotry and Judaism that was saying that these followers of the way were actually blasphemous. That's a, that's a terrifying thing. I, for as much as I've been maybe like emotionally uh, ridiculed in ways that are painful, I have not been persecuted to the extent of like a Nero or like, you know, um, a person saying I can no longer have a job or, um, or instead that I need to go let a lion eat me in a certain number of minutes inside of like while everyone watches. 
Um, these are not the risks that we have, but sometimes I think that the biggest, the biggest risk we have in post-truth is that we're going to be looked at, at times, as not tolerant and not kind. But did you know that the most loving thing you can do, the most loving thing you can do is acknowledge that there's objective reality even when it's being denied? Um, and this is because when, it looks at, when we look at our impact on our culture um, of pluralism, we're seeing uh, an increasingly hard time of addressing the things that we all agree on as unjust. The things in this world that Jesus said he came to what? To seek and to save the lost, to bring uh, abundant life to the world. Well, Jesus knew that without his objective truth claims, we couldn't actually agree on what's un unjust or un un um, unhelpful to live like. And so um, acknowledging that there is no proper way to uphold law or uphold uh, civilization without objective and moral truth claims is something that we should bring in when we're looking at living out our faith and why we should be vocal in the public square about beliefs and ideas because they do matter. They do matter. And Jesus is um, the person who most expresses the way that ideas truly change the world. Because not just an idea, but the person who lived out the idea, the person who showed himself to be truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that power is yours today to have if you'd like it. If you're wondering, can I speak to this moral relativism? Can I speak to this culture? Can I make a difference in the world that's more than what these other religions or views teach? I want to leave you with this, with this one last quote before we close. Dr. James Allen Francis explained Jesus like this. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness and fame. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen long centuries have come and gone, and today he is a centerpiece of the human race and a leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. So when we're looking at a post-truth world, Let's look at the power of testimony and that the original commandment of Jesus was to share your testimony. If you've encountered this person, this person described in a paragraph that is like almost brings me to my knees, I wonder what that person can do in your life today. I wonder what that person can do to show himself the way, the truth, and the life in a relationship, not a concept to, to, to find a, finally attain. Um, so I ask you today uh, to consider all these things we've talked about and hold it in your heart and ask yourself, who is a more trustworthy figure to follow about what's true in the world than Jesus of Nazareth? If not Jesus, then whom? Peter said that, to whom else would we go? To whom else would we go? If you're still like, I don't know if this is all, that helps some stuff, but I'm not sure. 
just ask yourself, to whom else would I go? Let's close. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to, um, to have a relationship with you for free. Um, free to me, but not free to you, God, that you invested in having a relationship with us, Lord, by, by coming as a man, living perfectly in a way that only you knew how in dying for us, atoning for everything we've ever, ever done wrong and, um, and resurrecting to prove yourself victorious over sin, death, and the grave. Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you're offering to us. God, I ask that uh, whoever is in this room today whether they know you or are not sure if they know you or getting to know you or if they are um, far away from ever thinking that uh, truth can be found in religion. Lord, I ask that the relationship that you offer through Jesus would become profoundly acute right now. God, that your Holy Spirit would move in hearts and open um, our thoughts and our hearts to consider that a relationship with God is so much more than religion, God. It's so much more than uh, objections and arguments, Lord, but that transforming life only happens through relationships, and relationship with the most powerful almighty in the universe is a good place to start. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, use these words um, to bring people to know you in Jesus' name. Uh, so, yeah, now we're... We are going to have uh, time. Okay, so I was like, I could have rambled on and on, but I really wanted a time for us to interact and have a discussion of sorts and having some Q&A time for a few minutes. No? Um, and then Suki will add a few words and then you two. No. I'm sorry. <laughs> I trail off. Sorry. Um, so as we're thinking about this, I, I would just love to ask, like, if there are any questions, then shoot your hand up and, like, um, and we'll talk about it together some. And then... Um, and that way we can make sure to, ha like, there's a lot that you can't cover in a talk, um, but there's a lot to continue to discuss. And so whether it comes to resources you're questioning about or whatever, please uh, either raise your hand now and let's talk through it, or uh, please come and find me afterwards. And, um, is there, are there any questions? Um, she asked, what is the way that we can answer someone who asks, like, how can I believe in the Bible when there's so many translations, and how do we know what's really being said? Um, so first, this, this idea of kind of like, it's a game of telephone, and what we have in English translation now has been changed over years, and all these things. These are, these are concerns of, first of all, if someone's main concern is English translations, you can say things in numerous ways, but let's go back to the original languages. And uh, what we find is that in some of the major classic works of history, you only have two or three copies of like the entirety of a text. And it was written like 200 or 300 years after the text. So for example, like a, a life story of Alexander the Great, which is widely accepted, wasn't written for hundreds of years after, until he, after he died. And, then, and, was, and we only have a couple sources. But we don't panic about like, whether that's true, you know, or that's real. Um, and we also have like the example of the Iliad or some of these other major works of literature where there's only a couple copies or it was rewritten or they're only parts. In contrast, the New Testament is the most manuscripted uh, piece of literature in the world. There are 34,000 
copies. And of those, um, they all say the same things. They all include the same information. Um, in fact, scribes with the scripture used to like by hand write, and if they messed up, even like a jot or a tittle, meaning like, let's say the ink splattered or their eye was connected to the T wrong, they would be like, start over. It's like, what? <laughs> like, I remember my mom talking about the pain of like with a typewriter, if you messed up, you couldn't just like backspace, you had to like cut it out or like do the stuff and it was like you cry doing your term paper. I could not imagine being partway through Second Chronicles and being like, no, <laughs> like by hand. <laughs> and only like a fourth of the population's literate, so you have to do it again. Like, um, so I think that some of the uh, some of the perspectives that we have now in a world where we have like Snapchat and like Instagram tweets and or, or Twitter and tweets and like Instagram pictures communicating like news, um, we're incredibly skeptical that in the past people did it differently. And when it comes to scripture, the the scribes that were co making copies, the copies were literally exact. It wasn't like I'm going to add in a little thing about what Jesus was wearing that day. Um, <laughs> So I think that some of, the, some of the best ways you could do is to compare, if we're gonna have skepticism about the Bible and whether we can trust the Bible, we need to have that about all of history and all of texts. And that goes into a pretty muddled ground of like, we should all give up all of our academic work right now. Uh, that's, so, um, but yeah, that would be it. Any other questions? Yeah, that's, ex that's an excellent question. Um, when it comes to like the people, what first came to mind was David Foster Wallace gave this commencement speak, uh, speech years ago um, at, about how everyone worships something. And he described that all of us live um, in, a, in a way where we have a worldview, but we don't recognize what lens or worldview we have. And he described it as like fish not being aware of water, because water is just like what you're in, it's reality. Um, and so it's sort of, uh, the way that usually I get to this is I kind of would look up and quote the entirety of like that section of David Foster Wallace's commencement speech where he describes that we're all worshiping something and we're all living for something. And this is coming from a secular uh, writer who then later killed himself. So that's intriguing that this person is A, recognizing that some of the worldviews are there and it feels so natural to us, it's like fish and water. And so water is some, so basically asking someone, what is a very integral part of your life? And just asking someone, what are the things that you find existence to be most about? And as they unpack their life story of like, where did you come from? What were you taught by your parents? What are some, um, important lectures or learnings that you, at school or in work that made you rethink about life. And you just ask them questions that, that make them start to answer. You can kind of piece together. So it seems that you really care about family values. Oh, you really care about um, there's objective truth when it comes to uh, doing well by other people. Or like you can kind of see, oh, do you see how this is actually water that you're like living or swimming in in your life? And so even if you don't have religious terminology to describe the worldview, 
you can paint the picture that the person cares about certain deep values or believes certain things about their reality they're living in. And then from that, you can, you can basically respond by sharing some of your background and some of your, the things, and maybe the spots where you've questioned similar things or you've thought different things, sharing those. That way they understand that you, from the inside out, have experienced some of those things or maybe have thought some of the same questions. Um, but then saying, I found that for me, and then tell your testimony. And sometimes the contrast just really starts to show that one worldview is more coherent than another, if that makes sense. Um, any other questions? This is so great. Yes. Yeah, my favorite uh, thing to do is actually sharing the testimony of not you, but someone who is l most like the person that you're talking with. So there are actually quite a few, uh, if, you, if you look up, um, I'm trying to think, David Bennett um, and Sam Albury are two men with uh, RZIM who are same-sex attracted and who discuss sexuality, theology, faith, by experience, by testimony, as well as doctrinally. Um, and there's all, there are also people, various persons of all colors that we could ask to share their testimony or describe their particular reasons for coming to Christ. And um, the best thing you can do, the most loving thing you can do is give a referral. I, I think in some of these circumstances, share your own faith, obviously, but say, hey, I understand that like maybe you would trust or understand more if it was from this person. So it's like uh, if I run into a med school student at Stanford, I'm like, my husband went to medical school. Like, say something, David. <laughs> um, and it, it might just be that some of the friends you know who are of a certain race are, are just praying for an opportunity. And then you're like, hey, my friend, yada, yada, would love to hear your story. And that is respectful of both people. Um, and, and, we and what's so beautiful about Christianity, that's not the case for other religions, is we actually could do that. A lot of people wouldn't be like, I don't know a gay person who's this faith. Or like, I don't know, you know, or whatever. And so it's, it's like... You most likely do know people who come from in all shapes and sizes and, I, and backgrounds that know the Lord. And it's a really wonderful way to connect and show kind of um, like, like uh, death by a thousand paper cuts, like <laughs> uh, that someone maybe needs to consider like, why am I bleeding out? And it's like, <laughs> anyway, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? I think as we were wrapping up, I did, oh, did she, oh, no, she was just moving in here. Okay. It was not a question. She was just making herself appear. Anyway, so now I want to just welcome Steph to start a time of prayer. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Abigail, um, for... Um, and Abby, I assume the, the offer still stands, that you're down for questions afterwards. So... Um, yeah, I just, I just want to say thanks for this, a lot of information, a lot of thoughts, a lot of addressing maybe things we've thought, maybe things we've talked to other people about. Um, I also really appreciated how Abigail spoke to like the entirety of the spiritual experience, the emotional experience, the, the intellectual experience of engaging with Jesus. And we just um, like gratefully bring that back to this 
this annual priority that we have at the ARC of being wholly rooted in Jesus. Um, so uh, the, the big wish and desire for us is that every person in here walks away feeling a little bit more able to be rooted in Jesus, a little bit more situated in what it means to be rooted in Jesus, and like there is a step forward, both an invitation to yourself and potentially here invitations to those loved ones in your lives who um, would also be benefited by being rooted in Jesus. Um, so we, we are going to open up the, the altar here. Um, we'll have prayer ministers up here. Um, if there are any of the things that came up that you would really love to process through a partnership um, or other things unrelated to the sermon that you'd love ministry for. Um, so we'll, we'll play for some music facilitating that, but you can also um, take this as a, a close to the service if you um, are ready to move along. But uh, thank you for being here, um, and I'll go ahead and just close us in prayer as well. Um, yeah, Lord, thank you that, that Jesus lived such a scandalous um, and inviting and inclusive and uh, truth objective filled life um, full of invitation to each and every person um, here and each and every person who has walked this earth. Um, yeah, Lord, would you make us a people who are faith filled? Um, would you make us a people who are wholly rooted in you, in Jesus, um, and, and can hold that and express that uh, in truth and in love? Um, yeah, Lord, we just pray, pray blessing over, over this word as it, as it sinks into spirits, um, and minds and, and goes forth and bears fruit. God, we ask, um, we ask that it would bear fruit a hundredfold in your name. Um, yeah, and just bless each and every person as they go. Amen. Uh, again, prayer ministers will be up front, um,